0: Uh, the predominance of the handout, of course, is dealing with worldview and cooperative change. That's the larger part of the handout, uh, which will take you through four major values. When we teach church planting. We teach it from a value presentation, and we talk about four values. Those are our worldviews, and from those worldviews, we make all of our decisions. The second handout takes as an example how we sit down with our church planters and take like the last, uh, our last worldview or value being the lost matter, that's how we make that lost matter walk on four legs. That is the one page that's front and back shows you how we sit down with them and tell them how they're gonna go into a lost community and what needs to be accomplished and that exactly is a sheet that we do for every one of our values with them, and we walk them through exactly what can be done, what can be accomplished. As we put uh, feet to the values, so they got a clear understanding. Like, as, as simple as just to give you an illustration, and we'll get into the notes uh, as there Uh Like when we say the lost matter as a value, and I'll tell you where we draw that from. But uh, when we say the lost matter as a value. We tell our church planters, you go into a community, you establish, and you'll see that little circle of 30,000 and 10,000. We church plant in groups of 40,000. That is, we believe if you spend a lifetime in a community probably the best you're going to do is reach 10,000 closest to the church you're, you're starting, and you're going to make aware of your ministry another 30,000, and if you can't champion 40,000, then we expect that somewhere you failed in your outreach ministry with the loss of your community. And so that's how we work it. And so when we work in that community, we'll say, like, if you look in the one sheet of paper on how you apply the truth to Lost Matter, we'll say, take, for instance, funeral homes. We expect you to know every funeral home director inside the 40,000. We expect you to meet with them, we expect you to get to know them personally, and somewhere down the line, offer your services free of charge to be the chaplain for that funeral home. And that ministry is simply an opportunity to deal with people that do not have pastors. And they come in all kinds. I was the chaplain of a church we started up in Ames, New York. Uh, I was chaplain of three funeral homes. I did uh, funerals for so many people you can't imagine. A lot of them are just gravesides. But they have nobody to do it. The funeral director calls me on the phone and says, Pastor Potter, we want you to come. Well, we've got a, a Catholic individual who has no love for their Catholic church or their priest, but they want to be buried appropriately. I bury them my way, I don't bury them the Catholic way. You know, you never know what you're going to do. You can get them. I've done a Mormon. I've done. Uh, uh, oh, I've done a couple of uh, just all kinds of varieties. But what's nice about it is when whatever's over is over, they usually have a get-together in their home, and they invite you. And you begin the process of meeting people you had no other way to meet because you were a part of that funeral home. We do this in a lot of capacities. I'm not saying funeral homes are sitting out there waiting to make you their chaplain. The first thing they want to know is that they can trust you. You know, Most funeral home directors are scared to death of us because they don't know where we're coming from. And they got all these value systems they're trying to satisfy to make their money with. But eventually you can work your way in. That's all that is. And that's what we work with our guys with that one sheet. That's what it's all about. And if you got any questions about it, I'll be more than happy to answer those questions. Now, a little bit of background so you know where I'm coming from. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I got saved when I was 17 years old. I'd never darkened the door of a church up to that time. Knew nothing about churches. Knew nothing about the Bible. and never seen one. Uh, I knew they existed, don't get me wrong, but I'd uh, never seen one until I was 17, and I uh, was led to, the Christ, led to Christ when I was 17 years old, uh, and from there I went to live with my sister in her basement because I was a typical runaway in the 60s from home when I was in ninth grade, and uh, thus I had 12th grade left, now I was a new believer, so I lived in the basement of my sister in Minneapolis and started at Fourth Baptist Church which was downtown Minneapolis or North Minneapolis. In those days, you might remember a name by the name of Dr. R.V. Clearwaters. He was my first uh, pastor, first individual I ever heard preach the word of God as a young believer. Went on to Pillsbury College. Graduated there, went on to Central Theological Seminary. I graduated from there, and I left Central after spending four years as youth pastor at Fourth Baptist. I was the junior high youth pastor at Fourth Baptist for four years, and we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, to start a church with 11 people at that time, which was the beginning of my life as a church planner. So we started our first church in 1974. started in December of 1974 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, stayed there 13 years and started five churches out of that church, and uh, we had a wonderful ministry with that church and enjoyed it uh, immensely. We have been privileged to work on churches in the Philadelphia area, southeastern Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, uh, New Jersey, a number of places in the Poconos, New York City. One church, when I was with Dr. MacArthur as vice president, we started a church in Vista, California, which is North San Diego uh, County as well. And now I've been here for eight years at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Came to Shepherd's told uh, Dr. Davey when I came, I said, I have one vision that is somewhere down the road we need to make church planting a discipline inside the MA degree and inside the MDiv degree. And three years ago we did that, and I said, when we do that, we're going to need a church to come alongside of us, because seminaries don't start churches. Churches usually start seminaries. So we need a church, I said, that's going to come alongside of us at that time, because when we put this together, we're going to talk about three areas, training, Coaching resources. We can't send men if we don't supply them the funds they need to start churches. And I'm thankful that three years ago, Colonial voted as a church to stand tall with us. In fact, they raised a half million dollars to support the ministry so that we could begin to help our graduates who are going out. Today, we have 26 graduates who are out uh, in new church-type ministry across all the United States, and uh, many of them said, well, it's not 26 anymore, because some of them actually have graduated from the program. They're now independent churches that are serving uh, the Lord independently and don't need me anymore. So uh, those are those type of ministries. So that's kind of where we're at, and that's how we build our ministry uh, in that area. We've got 10 more coming up in our ranks right now that are studying, that want to go out into our, what we call the Shepherds Network. Uh, I serve on behalf of the local church there, uh, Colonial, and I am the chairman of the church planting through Colonial, and then I also teach uh, at uh, Shepherds and head up the church planting as a ministry there. So you got my background, you know where I come from. When I started the church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I had about one month. I had resigned at uh, Fourth Baptist as a youth pastor, and I had about a month to prepare to go out to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's going to be the first time I'm going to be on my own. I won't have the security of a great big church standing around me. I won't have Dr. Ivory Clearwaters to do all the problem areas that I can throw his way. I'm going to be the guy that's going to create the trouble now. And so uh, as I thought about it, I sat down and went through all of my seminary training, which was an absolute benefit, though we had no church planning in our training ministry there at Central. But we had excellent theology. I I was taught good exegetical theology, good historical theology, good biblical theology, and good systematic theology. And without those theology, let's face it, you cannot teach pastoral theology. Because pastoral theology weeds itself out of the four major theologies that we teach uh, on the seminary level. And I had the four major ones, and I had a partial of the last one, except I had four years of good experience Uh, as a youth pastor where I had to preach and teach three or four times every week. And so I was learning the pulpit life. And so as I was getting ready now to leave, and my family had one child at that time, as we were getting ready to move to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, start with 11 people. So I was going from a youth group of over 200, and I was moving to an area to have now 11 people. That was going to be a difference in its own way. But as we thought about moving there, and just to show you where church playing was in 1974 church in Lansdale, Pennsylvania called Calvary Baptist Church, said they would take on my support, and they gave me two months to be independent, So, uh, but they were going to take on my support, and so uh, uh, I had uh, support guaranteed for two months, although I, I, I officially understood that they would probably, if I was in trouble, were going to continue, but believe it or not, two months, that church was independent. It was our first church. We had some wonderful businessmen who came to Christ, got saved, did Bible studies in their homes. They grew in the Lord. They began to be tithers almost immediately, and we watched that first plant grow immensely. In fact, it's the only church I ever planted and ever pastored that we never stopped the growth. We tried starting churches. We pulled people out of our church. We tried everything we could, and we were never able to stop the growth of the church there uh, in Lancaster. It just continued to grow, independent of the fact of the families we took out to start churches, like in, in York and Parksburg and these other places in Hurstville, where we were starting churches as families who were driving 35 miles to come to be in our church. And so, uh, in that area there. But when I was preparing for all that, I sat down and I made a determination that as I wanted to start a church not built on a marketing premise and not built on, on a business premise, but I wanted to take the values that I'd learned in my theology classes and fine-tune them and make a decision. I was going to build a church and make all my decisions based on those values. Well, the question comes in, where do you go to isolate your values, you know, to bra- draw those values in? Can you hear me out there? Is that better? Now do you hear me out there? That's better. Okay, that's better? Okay, good. So what I did was I did a study through some of mine. I had a nice exegetical course that I did in historical theology on the, on the book of Acts. I always loved those exegesis courses because you took all those notes with you right into the ministry, you know, and you had all that done. But um, and in Acts chapter 2, I took notice of the first church that was established in Jerusalem. And from that church, I drew four values. You make them draw five or six, I drew four. Basics says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In essence, truth mattered to them. Theology was an issue to the first church. Therefore, if I'm going to start a church, theology is going to be an issue to me. The truth is going to matter in this church. So that was the first thing. They They also participated in the apostles' koinonia, in their fellowship. That is, the church was a family. It operated as a family. I had my second value. Second value was... If I'm going to start a church, I'm going to organize a church that's going to learn how to be a family. That is, we are going to put an emphasis on being a church family. Number three, they broke bread and they prayed. God mattered. So this couldn't be a Boy Scout camp. This had to be a church. And if it's going to be a church, then God's going to have to matter. I had my third value. Now you can work through the rest of the verses, and I kind of skip through those, and you'll find a lot more God matters in the rest of those verses. Until you come to the last verse, verse forty-seven of Acts chapter two, where the Bible says, "The Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved." And my fourth value was right there: the lost were going to matter. So basically, it's not that I hadn't discussed that. In fact, there were many of us in seminary discussed a lot of these things. And, and, you know, in seminary, you solve all the problems of the world because you uh, argue through every one of them in seminary. So I, I know exactly how many uh, angels I can put on the head of a pen. You know, I know all these things because of the arguments we fought through in seminary. But I had these four values, and I said, okay, I've got four values. The truth is going to matter, church as a family is going to matter, God is going to matter, and the lost are going to matter. My determination was if any one of them is ever weakened, then this church I start is going to be a weak church. All four of these have got to be functional. Now I've got to understand. Them. Now believe it or not, in 1974, I wasn't as clear as what I just said to you now. I had the values, but I didn't have them as well stated at that time. And I had talked with another friend who actually built a sermon out of it. And I said, can I take your sermon and make those now my values? Because it says it better, and so we've done that. And basically what we've come up with was four basic values. Now, before we get to those values, because that's what it's all about. All the notes in that section are on those values. Every decision I make and every decision the leadership structure we place into a church makes has to come out of these values. So our worldview is built on these values. Now that's important because since 1974, you know, church planning has become quite popular. Just about every place you go, it's raising its head. And it's found in a lot of places. And I get to speak in a lot of those places, and I participate in a lot of those zones, and sadly, I have to report to you that we are all re- already becoming very Western-minded as we think about church planting here in the United States. It was uh, Albert Martin in his great book, which just came out this year on pastoral theology. I hope he finishes all three. He's quite elderly now, but he's finished his first volume. He's got two more to go in pastoral theology. But he made a statement. And he did it toward the whole idea of pastoral theology, and I turned it around and addressed it to church planting and it's simply this: is that the worldview must be driven by biblical values. This is the only way we can avoid the pitfalls of being raised in America as believers. Because here we have grown up in a society where how-to means everything. How-to is everything. Mentally, if you think about, that reduces this ministry of church planting. Just to an administration or motivational skills, it reduces it to it. If that's all it is, is a bunch of how-to's. And we address it in the classroom. I talk to our guys and I say, "Listen, be careful," because I said in this day and age we live, we tend to borrow unapologetically from marketing and business principles in America. I'm not saying all marketing is wrong. I'm not saying all business is wrong. But a lot of our church planning today is totally driven by it. Number two, I says, we tend in this country to value human experience at the level of principle. And that's a great danger in church planning. Number three, I says, we are driven by success examples only to experience that it can be absolutely fatal in church planning. And number four, I tell them, We have a savior mentality too often that warrants emptying all other churches but establishing no hubs of opportunity in the neighborhood we say we've come to reach. But I said if you're going to be driven by principles and values in church planning and your decisions are going to come out of those values, then when everything is said and done, You will be able to say, oh my, what the Lord has done. And it gives you a premise to work from. So if you just take quickly your notes there, it says core organizational values. Here we establish the genetic blueprint that guides the life and growth of the planted new church in its DNA for its extended life. That is, these are not values that just extend to getting the church started. These are the values we're going to live on the rest of our lives 13 years I was in Lancaster, we saw our church grow to about 750, much too large for me to take care of. But every January we went over these same values with all the leadership. and every January I had preach a message to remind the church, this is why we have come to into existence here. And if we have stopped to realize that in this church truth matters, that in this church this church as being a family matters, and that in this church, God matters, and that in this church, the lost in Lancaster matter, then we have ceased to be what we started to be. So they're not just values for the beginning. They're values to carry on the ministry of that local church for the rest of its history. And it's a great premise by which you can make decisions. Key consideration, the ultimate goal of a church planner is to reach people. And I know of no church example that sets the pattern better as to what needs to be done than the Jerusalem church. Values that originated within the Jerusalem church, yet still the values to drive the church today. Now, there's, there's things in the Jerusalem church we're not going to pull ahead of, you know. Some of the gifts that they enjoyed are no longer assets to the church today. We have a completed context, and I'm not here to talk about all that. A church's core values establishes a church's core identity. Here we discuss keys to distinguishing matters for acceptable change. I give six reasons why values are so important. We use the values for everything. When I sit down with a deacon board, when I sit down with elders, when I sit down with the pastoral staff, when I sit down with any leadership team, we start with the values. I say, okay, we believe the truth matters. Can we prove that that is really true? What have we been doing all year? What's the preaching been like in the pulpit? Well, that's me usually. What have we taught? We go through all those things. And if we find something that's not working, we say that value is not being experienced, throw it out. That's where change is very easy. You can just throw it out. And we work through every value every year to evaluate what God has been doing through us and whether we have been true to the integrity of the values that we have set up in this church. If truth truth matters, do we still live by our doctrinal statement? And do we believe we can still support it? Now, if there's something in there we can't support, why is it in there? So truth matters to us, and that's how we make decisions in the church. When we say the church is a family matters, then how often do we gather as a family, and how well do we act like a family? Have you ever been in my home, the pastor? Well, if you've never been in my home, then we must not be a family. Have I been in every one of your homes? If I haven't been in every one of your homes, and I visit every home every year. Now, when we got up to 750 in Lancaster, it took me three years to visit every member of the church. It was just a matter of going into their home, take my sermon into the home, sit down with the family, and say, okay, this is what I preached on Sunday. Did anybody get anything out of this? You know, could anybody even follow my notes? That's how we always started. I just go over my sermon with them and see if they got anything out of it. And if they didn't, I try to help them get something out of it. And then we go on to the other things like pie, coffee, cake, all the good things that come with being a family. But what I'm trying to say is when you take these values, these values become the structures by which you make decisions, and they become the structures by which you evaluate where you're going as a church. And that's why you start with values. So in worldview, it's not just what's the best method for me to get the most people in the house. It's what are my values And what is the strategy based on those values? That's what these values mean. Now, in order to have values, you've got to be able to support those values. The trouble of taking values out of Acts chapter 2 in this great history book of the early church in the first century and taking it all from Jerusalem is we're about 2,000 years removed from it. So we have to go beyond that structure that we see by example and walk into the epistles where we have the didactic instruction of the word of God that's going to explain whether those values are truisms. And that's why I lay out with each value the structures that are there. For instance, when you look at the first value that truth matters, and we're going to look at that scripture, the primary consideration in church planning, reach them theologically, truth matters. Relevance to culture should never trump or clash with Bible based theology. Now, I will go any place in the culture where I do not have to sacrifice my identity. But the Bible is the base of my theology. Can I prove that? Does the scripture give me ample structure, foundation to prove that reality? Well, that's why I give you this study on Psalm 119, 9 through 16. If you know anything about the 119th Psalm, it's a great psalm to preach through. You can get 22 sermons out of it because every eight verses is built on one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the 176 verses, are only they only cover two doctrines. Only two doctrines theology and bibliology all the way through and the main doctrine is bibliology that's why the first person is used almost all the way through, he uses the third person the first three verses, then he goes to the second person, the second person is always in relationship to God in the Hebrew as you follow through the 118th Psalm and from that on all the way to the last verse of 176 verses the psalmist uses the first person because he's talking about the Bible and his relationship to it and how it's changed his life It's paramount in our understanding of the Old Testament theology of Bibliology. In fact, he hardly ever comes back to the third person again, in case you want to do a grammatical study. He comes back to the second person a few times and always in reference of God in those 176 verses. So we take a look at the 119th Psalm. Why? Well, remember, the psalmist asked God a question. He said, wherewithal shall young men cleanse his way? Way is the Hebrew word for highway. It means a line drawn between two significant points. So the psalmist says, I'm down the line. I'm looking back at my life, and I'm looking at what's possibly left. It started with a significant point. It's going to end with a significant point. That's the word, Hebrew word way. He says, I need to know how to keep it clean. Either circumstances have warranted to ask that question. Well, probably it did warrant asking ask it the question. In fact, if I had the sermon, I'd tell it to you, but I won't. How did God answer him? He said, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. He said, There's nothing magical here, whether you believe it's David or Daniel who wrote the 119th Psalm. He said, you've got to take heed to the word of God or you have no solution to the line drawn between two significant points. And that was the question. Remember the psalmist said, he said, I came with all my heart and I came unselfishly. With all my heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. And then wanna gives us the next verse, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee hid, the Hebrew word that means something I've done in the past, so that when the future becomes the present, it will be available to benefit me. I take God's word in the past, I put it in my heart even when I don't know what I need to do with it, because the God who knows the future, when the future becomes the present, it'll then be available to benefit me. That's the word hide. It's actually the English word treasure, to treasure it up. I take God's word and I treasure it where? in my soul is the actual word in the inner being of my life is that important? that I might not sin against thee remember the old Awana verse, right? well, Psalm 119 does that give declarative information that's going to benefit us on the first value Why do a study on that There's another study that adds information to that, and that's Paul's great letter, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is one of the church planting courses. We do a number of what we call English exposition courses because we think it teaches church planting better, like 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 2 Timothy. These are fantastic English Bible courses that lend weight to everything our church planners are going to see. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 5 is the last didactic section given to us by the Apostle Paul. Because after verse 5 of chapter 4, it's personal. That's where he says, I fought the fight, I finished my course, you know. He actually finishes his last lesson to his readers in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 5. That's a context. And remember, it's in that context where he basically says to Timothy, you want to survive in a time like this? Just listen to these things. So from verse 1 to verse 6 in chapter 4, he gives the advice for the church at Ephesus and for Timothy himself how to survive in times like these. And by the way, the same times that he was in, we're still in. We've just enjoyed 2,000 years of its development now. We are in the last period of critical change. That's the word he used in verse 1. The last period of critical change. And in that period, this is where he champions the importance of the Word of God. That's that great verse, another great Awana verse. 2 Timothy 3, 16. The Word of God is profitable. In essence, what did he say to Timothy? He says, Timothy, if you want to be ready for everything that's happening around you, that's verse 17 of chapter 3, He said, then you need the profitability of the Word of God. In essence, what he said was, your pastoral theology curriculum is the Bible. It's the Bible, Timothy. That's how you're going to survive. No wonder he says in chapter 4 and verse 2, what does he say? He says, and by the way, there are five imperatives in verse 2. Can you believe that? There are nine imperatives. From verse 2 to verse 5, there are nine imperatives. When Paul is done teaching, he does it with nine imperatives. They're all aorist except one. One is a present tense imperative. I'll give it up to you to go find it. Only one of them is present tense. All the rest are aorist. Which is very important to understanding. Because what Paul basically said in times like these, in the last period of critical change, what the church needs and what the world needs is simply this. Preach the word. So if you want to establish this first value, that's how I do it. We work through these connotations in the scriptures where the word of God is laid out in all of its important fashions and it is the means that we find to take that word of God and make it available not only to those who are in the house, but to those who are also out of the house, we call it the in-house, outhouse. Now, for some of you that are as old as me, the outhouse had another connotation in our day. But uh, we, we call it in the house and out of the house. Out of the house, everything is let's reach everybody in the neighborhood. In the house, let's do everything we can to get everybody as sanctified as possible. Progressive sanctification, you guys believe that? Okay, good. I want to make sure i have the right cloud here. So, but we want to bring everybody progressively along. And so when you work through the first point, and this is the way I'm covering it, I hope my notes, I, I put them in as complete a format as I could so that you would not miss their reality, so you could see them in an outline format and uh, how we lay them out for our students as they're getting ready to go out and be church planners on how they're going to take this, because they got to take this truth and make it walk on all fours. So how do you make that walk on all fours? It doesn't mean you have to have a, a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night service. But it does say you better have preaching. I mean, without the foolishness of preaching, folks, we're in big trouble. Spurgeon said it's a thermopylae of Christendom. Remember Thermopylae? It's where the Persians defeated the Spartans. What does Spurgeon mean by that? He said Christendom is one in lost, or lost. In the pulpit. It's won or lost in the pulpit. So when I look at my first value, I can say, we better have a good pulpit ministry at this church. It better be a ministry where people, you know, a dog that has many bones does not bite. But a dog that is hungry might bite. And so it's important in our churches. You know, I always said I loved being a church planner because I've gone through 49 years of ministry and never been in a church split. Because all the trouble I ever made was my own. I never inherited any. Or you might say I was a good compromiser. And that wouldn't sound so good. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Word of God and the role it plays in our ministry and where it plays itself out. Individual contacts, pulpit contacts, how we operate in the church with it. Truth matters. We work through that, and that becomes essential to us. And I've given you an outline there. I'm here till I, I've got to leave uh, Tuesday morning. I've got to be in Cheyenne, Wyoming. We're, we're in a new church plant there uh, that we are launching on Sunday uh, with one of our grads there. So, uh, But uh, if you have any questions, I'm glad to sit down, go through any of the notes with you in that area, but we'll never get through them if I... Uh, if I keep doing it like this, right? What time am I supposed to be done? Three thirty? You've got fifteen minutes. Wow, the guy who introduced me really took a lot of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll hurry. Okay, uh, we get down to the second. The social participation within the assembly is essential for the church plant. That is, we are to reach them relationally. Church community matters. We are a family. We lack this today, folks. And relationship, relationship, relationship is everything. We live in an age, I know, of the cell phone. We live in an age of the computer. And listen, I'm for taking advantage of everything we can in social media and all of these areas. But if we don't come back to what is the greatest of all experiences in the church, love, we have not built good churches. And in this passage, I kind of move through a number of thoughts now. I get to the love issue in the third value, but one of the passages that changed my life was Acts chapter 20. In fact, in my course, we call it the theology of shepherding, where we put an emphasis on poimenos. We spent a lot of time in Acts chapter 20 because it's the only place where Paul kind of takes off all the clothing and says, this is who I am. The three years I was in Ephesus, men, and I love the way he says it. He says, ye know. Now, if you take that little Greek thought, what he was basically saying there, and what is it, verse uh, 17 there? or eight, No, 18, Wow, well, it's in there. Acts chapter 20, okay? And, uh, but what he was basically saying was, he's saying, I'm about to lay my whole life that I lived in front of you for three years, and I'm going to ask you to attest to its authenticity. It's almost like he's asking them to give his testimony. It was like, take your best friend who knows you the best, and say, stand up and give my testimony, what you really know about me. What would they say? Paul's going to lay his life out as what it was to be the church planner and the pastor of the Ephesus church for three years and how that all went, and he works it through. And I give you the outline for Acts chapter 20 because he lays it out in verses 17 down to verse 27. And remember, in verse 28, that's where he begins to instruct them because he thinks he's not coming back. He's headed to Jerusalem for Pentecost and he believes he's going to die because God hasn't told him yet he's going to Rome and they believe he's going to die and he's got the elders sitting there at Miletus and he says this is my testimony tell me if it's authentic and when he's done he says because you have approved it as being authentic here's my God given instruction to take care of the church of Ephesus and the city of Ephesus and he does that from 28 on beautiful, wonderful passage about everything you and I believe about pastoral ministry. But it's that first part where he lays out relationships and like, I taught you publicly and from door from house to house. He's talking about the believers. He's not talking about, you know, door-to-door cold turkey calling. He said, I was in your homes. Imagine that. A pastor in the home of his people. Amazing, isn't it? But he says, I was there. He didn't, I, I didn't just teach you publicly. And I don't know what he did when he got to their house. I'd like to think that he took a sermon there and said, did you understand what I preached on the, on the Lord's Day, you know? And, and took them through because that's what I tried to do. But uh, he went to their homes. He talks about his ministry of the Lord. He says, how I serve the Lord. And, you know, and he, said, he said, I did it out of, out of a humility of mind. Boy, now you want a, a tremendous thought from the language. Humility of mind. You could basically translate this way, I did it because I wanted to. Remember, he's asking them to authenticate it. He said, did I minister among you? Remember, Ephesus wasn't the easiest place in the world. But he said, when I ministered, did you know I wanted to do it? Or did I do it for the pay? Did I do it because I've been coerced to do it? Now so he lays out the life of the church there. So if you work through that, it will give you some information on that value and how we build on that value. And I talk about the, the church as an appreciated organization is essential for the church plant. I, I don't swallow this thing that the church has failed. We need to try something else. Well, the church is what Jesus six months before his crucifixion said up there at Caesarea Philippi. What do you say? I'm going to build my church. And folks, we've been doing it ever since. Amen. And it is essential. I love the church. Even with all of its goosebumps and potholes and everything like that, there is no better place for God's children. And there's no place that we image the real life of Christ. You know, we really don't image it appropriately as individuals. We image it when we are a part of the body. Amen. Amen. That's, right. That's when they really see it. So we need to teach our people how to love each other, care for each other, participate with each other be a part of each other's life. That's what's a emphatic record of the presence of God. This is the third one. Reach them by cherishing deity. God matters. Uh, I, 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 that third little inclusion on the church is, it really goes with the second one, but reach them as, as, as far as God matters. I take uh, there for our study, I go to 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Remember, that's that great section where uh, he uses the numerical adjectives and said God first gave apostles and he gave prophets and he gave teachers and then he throws out the numerical adjective which is very important in language study and then he just talks about speaking in tongues and miracles and all this stuff and he gets down a little bit farther chapter 12 and he says now I want you to desire the best of the gifts well how was the Corinthian believer supposed to understand what were the best of the gifts he just listed a whole bunch of them numerical adjective it's the only way you can understand it he gave three of them numerical adjectives what did he say He said, the best gift is not the miracle things. The best gift is the guys I gave to you, your pastor, those teachers. He said, those are the best gifts. And our churches need to learn how essential the men of the cloth are. They have been given as a gift to God's people. And they are the best of the gifts. That's what he's talking about. So I use the numerical adjective there. But then he said, I'm gonna show you a more excellent way. Remember that? And you've got that great section, chapter thirteen, verse one through verse eight, where he has what, thirteen to sixteen adjectives to define this wonderful thing we call agape love. And he spends all that time, works his way all the way through that. And then he goes through a bunch of things where he says, I saw through a glass darkly, and I stood, you know, and he, I was old and spake as a child. Now I'm a man, I do, you know, or well, how that goes, you know. And then he comes to verse 13 and he concludes it all and brings it to the present tense. Because after all, what is the church at Corinth missing at this point? Well, He's just spent the whole book belittling them. Telling them they're carnal. Telling them they're, 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 they're wicked. He's gone through all of this. Well, how's the church going to know when it ceases being carnal and starts becoming spiritual? If all you've done is told them how carnal they are. He did this section for this reason. That's why he went to this thing. Desire the best of the gifts. It's the guys I gave you. But I'm going to show you something even better. It's called love. Oh, I know I was a child. Speaking of child. Now I'm a man. speaking of a man. Oh, and I look through a glass dark. Then, I'm gonna... then he comes to the present tense. But now, now, right now, guys, he's talking to the Corinthians. Here's what abides. Faith, hope, and love greatest of these is love. Right there he told them what is going to make the difference when they will know they've ceased to be a carnal church and they're a spiritual church. It is the development of faith, development of hope, and the development of love and the greatest of these, he says, is love. And he gave them what they need. Now you can read and do this as a study for me. Well, not for me, for yourself. Um, Every epistle, the apostle Paul writes, 13 of them in all. That's if you believe he wrote Hebrews. And if you don't, that's fine. You know, when you get to heaven, you'll find out I'm right. So, But, uh, yeah. but anyway, may, whoever wrote it doesn't matter. We know it's inspired, so that's what matters. But if you look at all the epistles of the Apostle Paul, in every single one of them where a local church is in mind, he expects three things of that local church. Faith, hope, and love. I put in your notes, one church left off hope. It was the Thessalonian church. And he writes 2 Thessalonians and he says, I'm not satisfied. you got a lot of love, you got a lot of faith, but you don't have hope. And he goes to chapter 2 and says, I want your hope back. Because you can't do it without it. Why are they in the section that God matters? Because how do we define God matters? you ever thought about it? I don't know about you, but he's invisible. I know he works. I know he's done some wonderful things in my life. I'm sure he's done some wonderful things in your life. But the fact is, I can't reach out and just touch him. I can't do that. And so I need a means by which I can experience the very presence of God. Paul gave it to the Corinthian church. He gives it to us. It's called faith, hope, and love. How am I doing here? I'm doing good. That brings us to the last one. As you work your way through... You get to the last one, and it's basically one that deals with uh, reach them evangelistically. The lost matter. It is not the business of the church planner to simply attract other Christians in the area. It is the business of reaching the lost, the unchurched. We listen for the cry of the newborn babe in Christ by developing healthy churches with new converts. New church work demands being connected with humanity. A church where the lost are not being reached has lost its way. In this study, basically, The Lost Matter, I take you to some passages in 1 Peter. Isn't it interesting that Peter writes to a crowd that's on the brink of total disaster, those five regions? Now, they haven't reached into full persecution yet. It's coming. They're starting to suffer consequences for their faith. And what does Peter tell them? Drum up your faith even more now. It's getting bad out there, I know. Things are really bad. This is where he said, I want you to be ready always to give an answer to every man. Although, I mean, First Peter is a cry for outreach to the lost when the lost are now turning on the Christian society. Boy, talk about present-day possible America and where we're starting churches. This isn't a time to retreat into the walls of our church building and throw a rock over the wall once in a while so they know we're here. No, this is a time that we should be reaching more people than we have ever sought to reach. We need to get the word out. We do a little study on salt. We do a little study on life. Now that's why to show you how you take a, a value and you make it walk, I gave you the little sheet there that shows you how we set up our church planners to make that value become special to them. We talk about the vitals like you go to the doctor. You know, you test their vitals. We have the three vitals. But we're talking about the lost matter. This sheet is basically what we go through, and we have a sheet like this for every one of them. And we sit down and say, we say, now, there is methodology. We can't escape it. But how can we prove that these values are our values? How do we make them become what we believe is the best opportunity for us to experience these values in the world we live today, in the church we live in today? And this is one just as an example. It kind of goes through all the things we go through with them as to how they reach into the community. Because we're not starting churches so you can hear the great sucking sound of us pulling people out of all the other churches. No, our desire is not to be the best church in the community. Our desire is to be the best church for the community. And in order to do that, You've got to reach lost people. And so the hardest thing we find today, you know, when I have a class of church planning today, and I have a group comes in there, I'll have 12 students sitting in front of me. First question I ask first day of class, I was ask, okay, I want everybody to raise their hand who has an unsaved friend. Do you know, most times I get no hands. These are young men studying for the ministry. I ask them, everybody in the room that has an unsaved friend, raise your hand. Folks, we don't know unsaved people anymore. We have started our own clubs, our own schools, our own organizations, our own everything. I mean, we can go to our own exercise places now. We never are with them. And I don't want our guys to go out and start churches just to empty other churches. Amen. Now, if they're bad churches, empty them, but let God do it. But I want them to go out because they're going there to reach the neighborhood. They're going to get in that neighborhood. They're going to be a part of the neighborhood. You know, And that means they're going to need all the wisdom that God can give them because they're going to get into situations that are not like just sitting inside the walls of the church. And they're going to need God's wisdom to deal with those situations. I served five years on the public school board. Two years as the president of the board in upstate New York. It had been a lot better if I had done it in North Carolina. Where there's at least a little Bible belt. It can be done though. And you can be a witness for Christ. And you can stand on your own two feet for your values even in this wicked world. It can be done. But they're not coming to our churches, folks. They're offended by our churches. They've watched television evangelism. They already have an idea of what we're like. And we're not like that. But how are they ever going to find out? How do you get them into your church building? You know, when I got saved and walked into Fourth Baptist Church, I was a new convert. All I wanted to do was walk back out. I felt out of place. I mean, I was sitting with kids who had suits on and ties, and they looked. I'm not saying they should have dressed like I came in. Remember, I came out of the world, and I had been saved. And for my first experience, I was sitting in a Baptist church in North Minneapolis where the youth group had just come home from camp, and they were all in the choir all off singing. And I looked at those young people. I was a 17-year-old, and I said, there is no way I'm going to survive here. As soon as this thing is done, I am out of here. A lot of unsaved think that way. If it wouldn't have been for one young man by the name of Steve Cornelius who said, hey, you're new around here, as, as if they didn't know, you know. And took me by the arm and said, let me introduce you to some of the guys. Because of that one person who knew relationship was important, I stayed. And started to grow. And over time, became usable but the unsaved do not understand us they don't understand our preaching it takes time to get them there where they can listen to a sermon and get something out of it it takes a lot of work in their lives but the lost have got to matter you need to find ways to get them into your church that are unoffensive I list a bunch that we used you need to find ways that you get into their lives in the community I mean, I was the prayer warrior for all the Boy Scout uh, potlucks. That's all I did. 250 family members gathering for a Boy Scout potluck, and Pastor Potter was there to pray. That's all I did was pray. Got introduced by the you know, the head commander, and uh, they introduced me as the pastor. That's all it was. Three funeral homes as the chaplain. You've got to find places to get involved. Know your people. Meet your mayor. Meet your council people. Meet your business people. Go to the chamber of Commerce, Just walk in and introduce yourself. Say you're the pastor. Go to every public school. That's right. They need you. I cannot tell you how many people we hired from our community to do our sports, to do our music, to do our dramas, because they're running out of money. We had no money left for those areas. So we had to hire everybody from the community to come into those areas. If you got some of those abilities, I coach sixth-grade boys basketball. I'm not a basketball player. just bought Dean Smith's book on basketball and just did what the book said, you know. But it gives you an opportunity to meet people in a way that you're not going to meet them anymore from the pulpit. And so the lost matter. So that sheet is just a worksheet. And it shows you how we design an area when we go into the area. When I went into Lancaster, I didn't go to reach Lancaster. That's 500,000 people, 1974. I went to reach 40,000 people that we had zoned out in a place called Bridgeport. If you've ever been to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Bridgeport's on the southeast side of Lancaster, just off of 30 uh, there. And so we designed 40,000. I said, that's what we're going to reach. Now, if anybody comes from the outside, we didn't shove them out. They were called the fringe benefit, you know. But our goal was to make sure 40,000 people knew that our church was there and knew to some degree what we could do for them as a Bible-preaching church.